it's actually not the antidepressant that's the issue in increasing risk of poor outcomes in children. It's most often the parental stress or the depressive symptoms. And I think that's really important. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Hello and welcome back to the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington and I'm here today with Marion. Hello. Hello, Cindy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah, you too. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, I, I don't know if you had the same feeling as I did last night, but I felt like a child on Christmas Eve, <laughs> like, <laughs> anticipating our chat today. <laughs> I, I'm just so excited to speak about all the topics around mom brain and, and parenting and how that changes your brain. Um, but before we dive into that, um, I would like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute at the Neuro for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. The Neuro is the first health sciences institution in the world to commit to open science, an approach to research that ensures scientific knowledge is shared widely and transparently. Before we jump in, um, please take a moment to follow the Curious Neuron podcast on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. And if you'd like to learn more about the um, the research behind child development and parenting, you can follow us on Instagram at Curious underscore Neuron or at Curious Neuron Podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Jody, for joining us today and, and talking about these very important topics. And I think a lot of them, including mental health, which I think we'll touch on at, at some point, is something that needs to be spoken a lot about a lot more. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here and to connect with you two, um, which we did via social media, in fact, was super. Uh, and I love talking about brain changes with motherhood and parenting in general and, and how it can um, play a role in mental health. Uh, yeah, so I'm happy mm -hmm. to talk about all things mom brain, and we can get into that definition <laughs> in a bit. <laughs> yeah, I think we will. You know, um, before we start, I'd love to understand a little bit more your journey and how your questions around all of this led to the research that, that you're doing today. I know you are originally, I believe, from BC, from yeah. British Columbia, and then now you're yeah. in France. Yeah, so... Um, Okay, I'll make a brief intro. I probably could talk about this too long, but basically I grew up in the Okanagan. I was always interested in um, behavior. I think I, I grew up on a small farm and I was interested in really the mother-child interaction. Um, particularly, I started to develop that interest more in university when I was at the University of British Columbia, looking at language development and how parents help their kids learn language, which is super cool. Um, but then I also was super interested in hormones and hormones and how they interplay with the brain and behavior and wanted to study. In fact, I wanted to study postpartum depression and the neurobiology of it initially, but ended up just working on motherhood and healthy mothers, um, partly because we just don't know so much even about the normal transition to motherhood and how it affects the brain and hormones. And so that's where I started uh, looking at reproductive experience. So the number of times pregnant and mothered and how it might affect um, plasticity in the brain and the hippocampus, which is an area important for stress regulation and affected by hormones and also plays a role in, in depression. And 
And I did this work um, in animal models, I should mention. So that's kind of my background is working a lot with animal models. Um, yeah, so I started off looking at the brain of mom rats, essentially, and not only looking at the brain, but looking at the hormone changes and how these changes might be related to cognition and memory. So I really started off with this kind of mom brain I guess, research, what we would call mom brain research, because it was also something at the time, which is still even now isn't well studied or understood is how memory might change and also how the brain changes. And in fact, I mean, although we know quite a bit about hormone changes during pregnancy in the postpartum period, we don't know about, we know about hormone changes in terms of, I should say, estradiol and progesterone, for example, and prolactin and oxytocin, but we actually don't know very much about other physiological changes such as neurotransmitters, serotonin, for example, isn't well studied um, in healthy moms and in pregnancy in the postpartum. So there's just so many gaps in the literature. Um, and since my PhD, I went on to do a postdoc with uh, Dr. Tim Oberlander at BC Women's uh, a Hospital, we, where he studies antidepressant medication use and its effects on mom and baby. So we did a lot of work on that. In um, I worked with him um, in the human cohort, and then I went on to continue kind of an animal model of that research, as well as looking at moms, uh, mom brains as well. So that's kind of my journey a bit in a nutshell. Um, over the past couple of years, due to the fact that I don't have a permanent research position here in France, where I moved, um, I've actually lived in a few different countries over the past few years. So, um, but I moved here with uh, my husband, who's also an academic, and I ended up doing extra training to be a psychotherapist. So I also work part-time with moms or women in particular, uh, who are struggling with their the challenge of motherhood or um, other challenges in their life. So that's also been kind of uh, a huge learning experience for me, but also a great way to really think about research and the context of research in terms of mental health and what are we really studying and how can that help individuals who are struggling. So. I'm sure some parents or, or moms that are listening are wondering if you were studying rats. And I, I know that that's how we study, you know, these models. H how is this work translating or I guess informing the work that you're doing now with moms? Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is a big question because, of course, rodents are so different than humans. Um, but a lot of the a lot of what we know about the brain, for example, uh, is conserved through animal models. So, or, you know, in, so different species have similar um, changes in hormone profiles, similar brain changes, for example, which can give us a really good indication of what's going on in the brain. I mean, I do what I like to call sometimes deep dive in the brain. So I'm looking at cellular changes or receptor <laughs> changes, whereas we can't do that in human brains um, or rarely. And so what we do with humans often is imagings, right? So we can look at volume changes of different brain areas, or we can look at blood flow changes as activity. We can't really get to the cellular type changes, at least in living humans, so this is where animal models are super great because they give us an idea of the changes that are probably happening in the human brain um, in, in more detail. But of course, you know, animal models are quite, uh, you know, especially when we're talking about parenting, they're quite different because a rat has lots of babies at one time and most women don't <laughs> and so forth. So there's differences, uh, but there's a lot of conserved 
neurocircuitry that's important for caregiving mm-hmm. that we're seeing across different mm-hmm. species as well. I think we could start by just going through some of the, the really important brain areas that are associated with motherhood and maybe just talk about the little, the differences in uh, how they might change and, and why we would expect them to change. Just kind of like a little uh, intro to the mom brain. Like what, what, er- what brain areas are we, are we thinking about when we think of a, of a mother and when she's pregnant versus when she's, she's, she's just had a baby. Okay. So, I mean, I think in the in the parental brain world, we like to talk about uh, parental brain neurocircuit or a maternal neurocircuit, but we know also these brain areas are quite important in, in fathers or other parents. So brain areas that seem to become quite activated and important in mothering, there's a lot of different ones, but I'm going to just highlight a few. So one that we're probably always talking about quite a bit is the amygdala. Um, for emotional regulation, fear processing. It also plays a role in other cognitions and emotions, but we probably think of the amygdala as uh, as having to do with emotions most often. We also know the nucleus accumbens is another area for reward and motivation. You want to find your baby rewarding um, to respond to it. So that's another area that's received some attention. I mean, of course, the, the hypothalamus is a big area that this is important for um, basic, I don't know, not basic, is that right? No, basic behaviors. So the hypothalamus is really important for reproductive behaviors, for example, and maternal behaviors specifically. It's an area where there's lots of different, um, the effects of hormones are quite prevalent. So, you know, that's one area. So you have the hypothalamus, you have the amygdala, we have the nucleus accumbens, we have the prefrontal cortex. So this is our ability to kind of mentalize, so figure out maybe what the baby wants and how to respond to the baby, make some decisions about even how to respond to how our amygdala is being activated with emotions, right? So so there's a lot of processing going on there. People also are doing more research on the insula, and I think that's one of the social... um, uh, social behavior area, brain areas, along with these other ones. There's, you know, there's a lot of overlap in what we call this parental brain neurocircuit with, of course, other behaviors and other circuitry. Um, but yeah, so we, it's not like there's a new circuit. It's just that these are brain areas that seem to become activated. Uh, what else can I mention? How about, how about the a, hippocampus? Yeah, so the hippocampus itself. Yeah, so I was actually on the outskirts of what was considered the the maternal brain neurocircuitry or the parental brain neurocircuitry. The hippocampus, it's not, you know, its role in classic maternal behaviors is not really evident. So you can lesion the hippocampus and the mom won't, the mother rat won't um, retrieve her pups properly to the nest site. So it has a spatial component because we know the hippocampus is important in memory, but in terms of the classic maternal behaviors, it wasn't ever part of this circuitry necessarily, but now we're starting to see that it, you know, it plays a role of course, because of the stress regulation, because of the navigation and memory component, but in terms of pup directed care or offspring directed care, it doesn't seem to play a significant role. Um, but that was my area. Because so I was a bit on I, the outskirts always. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm just thinking of everyone when they, they have a baby, everything is, oh, I have mom brain. I'm so forgetful. I'm so forgetful. So I'm always curious as to whether or not 
like, are we seeing big changes in, in the hippocampus, which is associated with memory? Or like, maybe we could talk a little bit about that, because I think that's what so many, I don't know, moms and, and even dads, it's like, once you have a new baby, is it really that my brain can no longer remember? Or is it that <laughs> we're, you know, trying to remember too many things? Or how, how does that, how does that play in? Yeah, sorry, when I posted a question box on Instagram uh, yesterday, the most common question was, is mom brain real? Is it a myth? And will I ever get my memory back? <laughs> so <laughs> so I mean, it, it goes back into what Marion just asked. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, what I was talking about in terms of this neuro circuit and parenting, the parental brain neuro circuit is actually really something that's been well developed in animal research. Um, and it has been as a result of specific like offspring care behaviors. So not necessarily incorporating memory changes. So yeah, so let's just talk about mom brain because when people, uh, <laughs> when you say brain and motherhood, it's mom brain and mom brain equals loss of memory and that's it. And then, you know, we can also, I want to preface, I also say that my research, in fact, shows that showed during my doctoral thesis that there's fewer new neurons in the hippocampus in mother rats. And so when people think less, less brain cells, then that means, oh, that's why I don't remember anything. But in fact, my mother rats actually yeah. were quite smart. And in fact, they did much better than the virgin females. So I always want to say that less can be more. And I really think that this is important to keep in mind, but I'm going to backtrack to the mom brain. Oh dear. So mom brain. <laughs> yeah. So we know that 80% of women will complain or discuss or feel this brain fog, this loss of memory um, and, and often verbal memory can't find the words for things, which I probably still have, but who knows if it's actually because I'm a mom or just because I have a thousand things going on or both. Um, so, but 80% of women say that during late pregnancy or the early postpartum period, they have essentially, you know, poor memory. This is how they feel. Right. So when I see the stats or when I saw those stats, I'm like, of course, there has to be something to this because you can't just have 80% of individuals say they experience something and not be evident. But unfortunately, the science on this has, well, maybe fortunately and unfortunately, the science of this has been uh, showing mixed results. So when you have a mom come into the lab, for example, and she's doing a paper and pencil test, um, you know, the lab's a quiet environment. There's no phones ringing. And in fact, moms on most of these studies do quite well on these paper and pencil memory type tests. We do see, you know, there's been some reviews of the literature and some meta-analysis so they can take a lot of um, studies together to get an overall result in these types of reviews and showing that there are slight memory changes, particularly, I believe it's with verbal, verbal memory during late pregnancy, but nothing that should interfere with your work productivity or anything else. So, you know, but there's also studies that show there's, there's no differences in moms and non-moms in memory. But for me, I've always been curious about I mean, there's a huge difference in environment there, right? So at home, I mean, there's a thousand things going on potentially. In the lab, you've taken the time to spend an hour doing some questionnaires and you don't have baby with you. And it makes a big difference, I think, in performance on these objective memory tests. 
So I only know of one study, which I was involved with, um, with when I was a PhD student. It was with uh, Carrie Cutler um, and Peter Graff and Lisa Glia. She was my PhD supervisor. But what Carrie did was developed this test where they actually, she was looking at prospective memory. So she would ask them to remember to call the lab a week later. So she had moms and or pregnant women and non-pregnant women. And in fact, the non-pregnant women, when asked to like mail something into the lab a week later or call the lab a week later, something like this, these kind of tasks where they had to do them at home, they did worse than, than the non-pregnant women. So then I'm always curious as I review papers on this um, subject quite a bit, like, can we get into actually what's going on with the mental load? at home and, and actually test that because if, you know, it to get, well, to test that, to get a better understanding of what moms are experiencing when they say, I feel like a brain fog. I can't remember things. I'm forgetting mm-hmm. things. I don't know where my keys are, what have you. Like, I think we need to develop better understanding our, in our science of what's going on in the environment. Um, that's, that's resulting in these subjective memory changes that moms so often talk about. But the other good thing is actually when you have quiet space, you can perform well, whether or not you're late pregnant, early postpartum, right? So, I mean, this is also important to remember that in fact, your memory very slightly changes. I wonder the impact of lack of sleep, because we know that even sometimes during at the end of pregnancy and and obviously after we have the baby, um, we're not sleeping very much. And that's when I noticed the difference in my memory and my ability to focus during the day. Yeah. So this is another thing that hasn't been looked at quite so much in the literature on memory changes during pregnancy in the postpartum period. But I think it's a huge component. I mean, lack of sleep at any time in life, whether or not you're a parent or not, can interfere with your memory and your functioning. So I think lack of sleep Mm -hmm. plays a role, possibly a bit the change in hormones. I mean, also your focus of what are you focusing on right now, your attention, right? So none of these lab tests tests that I know of are actually asking you about things related to your baby's well-being. They're asking you just things, you know, random things to remember, right? So is it specific, the memory to specific things that are important for your offspring to survive? Like these are questions I think about uh, quite often, but I also, you know, with this whole mom brain idea, which I actually don't like so much the negative connotation, because you're putting mom, which and brain together as a negative thing. And those are two very important, cool things. And in fact, your brain is super cool and changes a lot during pregnancy and the postpartum period so that you can parent. So you're actually doing a million things you're not aware of, I think, because we also are quite aware of how we're not performing cognitively. And I think that's where the social context comes in because, you know, women for so long haven't been seen as smart, for example, or they're being expected to be losing their mind when they're pregnant or postpartum. And so I think there's a little bit of that that plays a role as opposed to understanding all the things you are learning without even thinking about it when you become a mom. Um, so I always like, I would like us to rebrand mom brain to actually mean what it is, right? Yeah. It's an amazing, your mom mm-hmm. brain is quite amazing. And so, yes memory changes happen a little bit. Yes. You're probably brain fog, like getting brain fog and tired, but in fact, your brain itself is doing a pretty awesome job, um, on many fronts that you're just perhaps not picking up on. 
I, I love that you want to reframe it because I think you're right when it comes to society. Mom brain is is neg- it's a, it has a negative connotation to it, and it's you know like you said, forgetting and and all the negative stuff that that comes with that definition. But looking at the lab, yes, you are seeing parental changes in the brain, but we're, it's not about all the negative stuff. It's how does your brain change after becoming a parent so i let's focus on that part and let's start talking about that because there are so many changes and i there was a study that i was reading um that talks about the different changes almost like an adolescent brain right we we experience so many different changes and so how about we we start talking about maybe at the different stages during pregnancy um um, and then perhaps postpartum and then even after lactation, I'd like to make sure we cover that because um, I have a lot of questions around that as well. So how about during pregnancy? What are we seeing in terms of um, some changes? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to probably focus here on the, the human literature oh. from different labs. I, I, I'm going to be talking about other people's research, people I know, but not necessarily research I've yeah. been involved in. Um, but we know, in fact, in I was just going to say, see if we could just clarify, like, Maybe you could when you talk about human studies versus animal studies, but what we mean by by change is that, that we're like like you said, sometimes we could be losing neurons or gaining neurons or like connections. If we could just um, describe how connections between different brain areas and how that's considered a, a, a change. Uh, okay. Yeah. Because I think I, I just think that in ter- when we say like the, the, the brain changes, it's kind of an it's hard to visualize and, and think about what that actually means. Is it, I think when we think about change, it's like either it's getting bigger or it's like the brain areas are getting smaller, but there's also all this important connections, like how neurons connect to each other. And if we could just maybe describe that a little bit. Okay. I don't think, okay. I, I don't think we know so much about all those details of the connections or I would have to look up in more detail about the connections, but I'll, I'll talk about, yeah, the brain changes. So I think, yeah, brain changes is quite broad. So I often talk of a lot of neuroplasticity and what have you. And I mean, this is a broad term. So we're not, you know, so let's, let's talk about, I'll just, I'm going to start with pregnancy because you asked pregnancy and then I'll be give details of what we know uh, or what I, I mean, I can't give you all the details because I don't know all the details, but I'm going to give you the gist of what's going on in pregnancy. Um, I'm going to say that in fact, in humans, we don't know very much about pregnancy, uh, and the brain because partly because it's difficult to do imaging studies on the brain. So in terms of like, when we're talking about looking at the brain in humans, there's not a whole lot we can do, as I mentioned, but you can look at structure. So size changes. Okay. You can have have different brain volumes. You can look at blood flow, which is a a measure of activation, um, how active a certain area is. So those are two things. And that's usually with the imaging machine. So the MRI, Um, and then you can look at just brain waves. We would, we would call them brain waves, I think for the general public, but looking using an EEG, the electroencephalogram, as I <laughs> I'm challenged now with these words, cause I always say just EED. Um, and that's really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where, where you can put the, you know, you see these pictures where you have these little, um, things kind of glued to your scalp to measure activity across the brain. So those are two quite common ones in the parental brain research. The EEG is quite good to use during pregnancy uh, in particular, because we know 
you know, it doesn't seem to be uh, an issue in terms of anything with the physiology of the fetus or the mother. People have more difficult time getting um, ethics approved to have moms go into the scanner to look at brain areas and speci specifically the size um, as well as the activity. So in fact, across pregnancy, we don't have a study in humans documenting and even in, in animal models documenting brain changes. Um, well, we have one in animal models, but in humans, we have none documenting brain changes across pregnancy, like during pregnancy itself. There has been a great study in, in to what came out in 2017 in Nature Neuroscience with Elselina Huxima, um, who, who I know, uh, and Susanna Carmona. They've done some great research recently on brain changes with parenting. And what they did is they actually imaged women and men, um, moms and dads, before they got pregnant and then within two months postpartum and then two years later and then six years later was their most recent one. So that actually gives you an idea of brain changes across pregnancy. So when I talk about the brain changes they showed, so they showed that there's a decrease in volume in many brain areas that are important for social behaviors. So they looked at size, that structure, so decrease in volume. So everyone is, you know, when you say decrease in volume, it's like, this is why I'm forgetting everything. My brain is smaller. Um, and in fact, I mean, I'm going to say the decrease was probably about maybe 1% from what I know. And there was a study previously with a very small um, group size that showed possibly overall the brain changes about 4% during a cross pregnancy. That was by Oatridge and colleagues in 2001. They only had like very few participants in that study. Um, but again, that, that was kind of uh, showed that across pregnancy, there's this decrease in volume. And then Alcelina and our colleagues showed that specific brain areas have a decrease in volume across pregnancy again. So um, these brain areas are important for social behavior. So what she didn't show were they similar, sorry, sorry. Were they similar in moms and dads? You mentioned that they studied both. Parents. Yeah. Were so these the, changes. Yeah. Yeah. In the dads, they didn't see uh, the same effects uh, at all from what I, I remember of the study, but there's other studies that have looked at function or activation of the different brain areas in dads. There's a great one and maybe we can talk about it in a bit, but well, I can talk about it now. Let's do it. There's a great study out of Ruth Feldman's lab that actually compared mom primary caregivers, secondary caregiver dads, and primary caregiver dads. So they had different um, makeup of, of parenting and how invested or how much time they spent with the kids. And the primary caregiver dads and the primary caregiver moms had similar activation in certain brain areas. Um, compared to the secondary caregiver dads, which had a, a different level of activation. And I think the brain areas they looked at were the amygdala. So I think the amygdala was still different in the primary caregiver mom compared to the dads. Um, and also the, I want to say supratemporal sulcus, STS, but I'd have to look at that again. But there's a couple different brain areas they focused on or they showed effects in activation. And what I loved about it is that the primary caregiver dad and the primary caregiver mom had some similarities and it was quite different than the secondary caregiver dad. And I think this is also important because it's about time with the child. 
um, that's also important in how your brain will change and it will change in its ability to be activated, uh, like it's functional um, processes, but I'm, I'm guessing, and we do have research in animal models, we see changes at cellular level as well that have to do with experience. So I love that part of the, with the experience, because, you know, some, like, like you said, it was very similar to the primary caregiver fathers. Um, I, I had a question from a parent who was curious about the changes in um, parents who adopted a child. And I'm yeah. assuming with what you just said, that there would be similar changes if they're spending time with the child. Yeah, exactly. So there's only one study I know that's looked at this uh, brain waves essentially in foster parents. Um, but they didn't compare it with non-foster parents, but they did show that compared to what they know of these brainwave changes that the foster moms actually show brainwave changes similar to other studies with the longer time they spent with their foster child. So, but I would assume with Mm -hmm. adoptive parents, you're going to see the same, Mm -hmm. um, or similar brain changes. It's not going to be the same. Mm -hmm. I think we can't deny that physiologically pregnancy and the postpartum and birth do something, but I always think anyone can parent. You just have to be invested in parenting. Like there's no switch, right? Baby doesn't arrive and you know what Mm. you're doing. Never, but you're primed to figure it out, right? Like you learn, but there's also some research showing or starting to look at experience, right? So if you had experienced babysitting, like I'm always curious, like how are you then as a parent? And does that make a difference mm. um, in your, your near biology, for example? Mm. So I think experience is a big thing. Um, mm. But I wanted to go back to the study a little bit because I left you hanging with like your brain shrunk. <laughs> and does oh, that yes. mean, yeah. <laughs> and does that mean that that of course means I don't know anything. Um, but in fact, in Elselina's yeah. <laughs> study, they did look at cognition, of course, on these paper and pencil tasks in the lab, and they didn't show any link between the decrease in brain volume of these different brain areas and memory. And they didn't show a deficit in memory in these, these parents either. Um, They also showed that this decrease in brain volume of these different brain areas important for social behavior was associated with an increase in feelings of attachment towards baby. So I always like to think of this as a fine tuning of the maternal brain. So it's acting more efficient for some reason, who knows, but it's actually doing what it's supposed to do in a more efficient manner. So less, again, less can be more in that context. She also in that study, and I'd have to look at the details of which brain areas, but she showed, of course, functional changes. So an increase in activation. Now this is different, right? So this is an increase in blood flow or activity in certain brain areas when a mom is looking at baby, for example. Um, So I think that that's important to remember that just because the size changes, that can be actually separate from what's functionally happening in that brain area. I was just going to add my perspective as a neuroscientist when I when I hear this and think of brains getting smaller. So in my research, I do a lot of imaging of of neurons and their their axons and their connections. So looking physically at how um, an axon would change during development. And one thing we see is that initially they they have really um, a lot of uh, 
projections, a lot of connections. And then over time, we start to, to prune them. And so we see that very early on in, in development that we, we have all these projections kind of looking for the right partners. But as we make the really strong connections, and as we have like a maturation in the system, we start to lose branches. And so that's actually considered a good thing. Like as we're making really strong connections, we have fewer, but stronger. So I'm wondering yeah. if that's really what's what's happening during this um, this period of, of motherhood. We we have a lot of projections, but as we make really strong and stable connections and, and the synapses, these connections between neurons, as they mature, they actually become smaller. So then we see like a, a shrinking in the in the brain area. Yeah, yeah. And I think that this is something, this is one idea that comes up uh, quite a bit is this, this uh, synaptic pruning idea. I mean, we also know from the animal literature that there's a decrease in microglia across pregnancy in the postpartum period. We know that there's this decrease in neurons in, in new neurons, I should say, not all neurons um, during late pregnancy in the early postpartum period. Uh, but I also showed in animal models as there's an increase in a synaptic protein synaptophysin during late pregnancy. So there's, which maybe makes sense to some degree, because you're not having the turnover in the new neurons, but in fact, you're not losing so many neurons. So I don't know exactly what's going on, but I think there is a connection thing. And I think there's a, a getting rid of what's not needed, um, which is the idea around synaptic pruning, or we also, I think, you know, with the microglia decrease in microglia, there's something to do with cell death going on there as well, but to make it an efficient, efficient system. I mean, I should mention like brain changes that Elselina talks about are so consistent in moms that she could look at a brain, brain scans essentially, and see if someone had parented or not, or uh, given birth, I should say, or not. So, I mean, these are quite consistent. I I was, I was just going to ask, even if they're like past a certain period in time, I was, I remember that studies a little bit, but it's not just motherhood, it's motherhood in general and not that they were pregnant. It was at two years, I think, when they looked at like when she could do whatever modeling she did, looking at the different brain scans. And then you could, yeah, you could, you could reliably in what 90% of the images or more determine if uh, a woman had given birth and mothered. So we don't know if it was the birth or the mothering because they didn't have just mm-hmm. uh, adoptive parents in, in that context, although they did have dads, but the dads weren't primary caregivers. But in fact, yeah, so the brain changes were quite consistent over that period of time. So um, yeah, so that's the kind of the gist of that study. I mean, of course, there's other research in this area, the postpartum, and we see a bit different um, profiles in the postpartum with maybe an increase in activity or volumes in the within like, I believe it's four to six months, and then back to this decrease in, in volume uh, until at least two or even six months later, but not in the hippocampus, people, not in the hippocampus. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any associations between these changes that we're seeing during pregnancy and postpartum um, or or what are the links actually to, to mental health in a mother and, and um, like, are these, yeah, how are they contributing? Yeah. So, I mean, often I think of what I've described to you is these are normative, healthy changes that are happening 
Okay. What, what's been described to you. Um, and, and it's necessary for this decrease in brain size, I think, and these changes in functionality um, in order to parent and learn how to mother or, or to father. Um, so I, so th- those are normative and healthy. And I think when I first, um, we first talked, I've had people tell, like being so relieved to know that their brain changes during pregnancy and postpartum because they thought it was changing. And so I gave them a little bit of peace of mind to some degree. And I think it's important to realize that, yeah, it's changing. So it's probably going to be a little bit off once in a while, or who knows? I mean, the rest of your body is changing too when you're pregnant. So it makes sense that your brain would, but in terms of mental health, I mean, that's also been a hugely neglected area of research, particularly, I mean, in human, human research, but also in in animal models, we don't have a huge wealth of knowledge. Uh, And of course, modeling mental illness in animal models is is a model essentially gives us an idea of what's going on in the human condition but never can be mapped on a hundred percent um yeah we reviewed the literature on the neurobiology of postpartum depression and anxiety in 2017 and there's been more research since then thankfully but at that time there's probably in women like actually brain imaging studies about 25 and if you think like 10 percent of of mothers will have a mental illness and there's only 25 brain imaging studies i mean it's pretty sad um and it's like yeah it's it's terrible to think that we've neglected maternal mental health i always also get you know you can get quite um, enraged about it, if you think, because we've all been born out of the bodies of women. Uh, and why do we neglect this area of research so much, especially when it comes to, you know, mental health or health in general? In fact, we're also very focused on offspring development, which is lovely and wonderful. But in fact, motherhood and parenting itself needs to have uh, a, a lot of focus as well, because it's a, it's a developmental stage um, for many adults that they go through. So it's neglected. Um, I, I think that it's neglected in research and also in society because I've spoken to parents who, you know, have had a traumatic birth or were clearly showing signs of not having a connection or being disturbed by the birth of their child and not, not knowing how to accept it. And it was pushed to the side and they were just told, like, start nursing, get moved to the next step and never even asked are you okay? You know, do you need to speak to somebody? And then these moms are being sent home, right, with their brand new baby, and they're not mentally well. And it was clear from the moment they gave birth. Um, it's it's sad when you think about it because I've you know had the opportunity to speak to these moms, and nothing is being done about it. And then even to the point that when moms are going to a physio appointment for something postpartum, and that person, not even their doctor, asks them are you okay? You know, how, how's your mental health? And the moms just kind of break down because nobody has asked them until that moment. Um, it's definitely something that we need to talk about. Yeah, definitely. And I think that this is, I mm-hmm. mean, it's huge right now, of course, with COVID and, mm-hmm. and parenting yeah. and mothering during COVID. Uh, it's, it's a additional stress. That's, that's quite terrible. But when you talk about birth trauma itself, like that's something I've been quite interested mm-hmm. in lately because we haven't been talking about it. I don't think we have one study looking at childbirth related trauma and the brain um, at all. I don't know any research on that mm-hmm. in terms of brain neuro- neurobiology. And it's quite significant. A lot of women do experience this. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it can impact, of course, their lives, their 
their parenting and, and have pervasive impact. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's really great in Canada is that there's a Canadian perinatal mental health collaborative that's been set up um, headed by Patricia Tomasi and Jamie Dubois. Oh, I would have to check that, but I know Patricia Tomasi. Okay. <laughs> just know Patricia okay. and Jamie. I'll look it up and I'll it's have Patricia the and Jamie. Yeah. Okay. So okay. they're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> They've started this. Um, I I was a kind of a, a, a member or have been a member. I don't know what we're called now, but part of this collaborative. But they're really lob- lobbying the federal government in Canada to put maternal mental health or perinatal mental health on um, mm-hmm. to legislate it or make make it's something where it will have to be screened, for example, where there's screening process being put in place and options for care. And I think it needs to be part of mental health care or health care. I always hate that we have to think of physical and mental health as two separate things, because of course yeah. they are the same thing, hmm. um, but of health care in general. So they've been really working to, to change policy in Canada. And I think that this is super valuable and it can be, incredibly valuable it will be incredibly valuable for all those individuals struggling with perinatal mental illness but also it will be valuable to prevent these illnesses from happening if you have resources available where you can actually uh, see who's at risk or not so um, this is something that's been amazing over the past couple years they've they've been really uh, amazing at at getting this kind of um, lobbying going and and hopefully will change policy in Canada. Yeah. The mothers who are experiencing postpartum, um, postpartum depression or anxiety as well. Are we seeing the same brain changes that you mentioned before in terms of the changes in the social parts of the brain? Um, So, you know, like the pruning that we were just talking about, are we seeing the same changes or is that different in their brain? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a good point because I don't think, so I don't think there's been really good studies looking at structural changes. So they're looking at activation changes and lots of studies have focused on the amygdala. So, um, okay. which makes sense, um, to some degree, of course, but there's different, of course, different brain areas that are important. So in terms of anxiety itself, there hasn't been, to my knowledge, a single study that has focused on just women who have anxiety without depression. And I think this is actually quite tragic because we know that, I mean, a huge proportion of individuals will have, um, our moms in general will have, uh, and even dads will have anxiety in the postpartum period. And during pregnancy, Mm -hmm. it just is so, um, under recognized, I think. I mean, postpartum depression, we talk about a lot more easily these days. In fact, it's perinatal depression, because we do know that many individuals have depression during pregnancy as well. It's often coupled with anxiety, but it can be completely separate. Uh, So in terms of the brain and anxiety, in the postpartum period, we know virtually nothing except for in those few studies where they've looked at moms also who have depression. I mean, my favorite study I'm going to talk about is, is one out of, um, um, Alison Fleming's lab. And I can't remember the university McMaster, I think. So it's Aya Duden. She, she does the best study or she's done what I always thought needed to be done in this research where she compared depressed women who were moms, non-moms, and then non-depressed women who are moms and non-moms. Cause I think we have to not only compare or look at the mental illness during in moms and how it affects the brain, but also how does that compare to non-moms? And so she was looking at the amygdala in particular, 
And she definitely saw different activation levels of the amygdala. So the activity, if I remember correctly, was heightened, particularly in the depressed moms looking at a picture of a baby, the depressed non-mom looking at the picture of the baby. It didn't had, didn't have a big effect. So you definitely see that there's something specific about the postpartum period, having the baby and the stimulus of the infant or the infant cue that has a different effect on, on the maternal brain when there's a mental illness. So I think this is really important to remember or to consider is that there's actually, we like to talk about it, me and my colleagues, uh, as a unique neurobiology of perinatal mental illness. And in fact, we're seeing this, I've talked to um, Paula Danson, who's at King's College London, and she studies postpartum psychosis, which happens in one to two of every 1,000 women who give birth. It's severe mental illness that needs immediate attention, hospitalization, but can be treated effectively. But she does brain imaging uh, and uh, trying to understand the brain of these individuals who have had postpartum psychosis and what she said overall, or what she's showing is that the brain changes. Um, and again, I'm being broad with the brain changes. Sorry, Marion, for not being more specific, but there's certain brain areas related to uh, psychosis, for example. And she's seen differences in how those brain areas are activated in the postpartum period in women who have psychosis or increased risk factor for it versus at other times or in non-mothers, let's say. So again, it's speaking to like the same brain areas are important and activated or playing a role in these mental illnesses, but how they're responding during the postpartum period and probably during pregnancy are quite different. And I think this is one of the big things that's important as we move forward in this research is do we need to start to tailor treatments uh, specific to these changes in neurobiology uh, and, and determine how to more effectively treat or prevent these mental illnesses by looking at how the brain is changing in possibly quite a unique way. And, and so that's kind of where we need to go. Easier said than done, um, but something we need to be talking about, thinking about uh, as we yeah. move forward in this area of research. In addition to the brain changes that we're seeing across like pregnancy and postpartum and what are, what are some of the hormonal changes that we're seeing and how, what is the role of these changes as well in, in mental health? I'm, I'm asking because I guess this links into my next question, but the lactation and, and what role breastfeeding has. And I know that that with around that, we usually talk a lot about hormonal changes. Um, and, and I'm just curious how they all kind of link together. <laughs> Oh yeah, this is a great question. I don't think we know. Uh, so, I mean, I do know that sometimes breastfeeding, some individuals who say stop breastfeeding feel more depressed afterwards. If you're, we're talking about mental illness, some actually feel depressed while they're breastfeeding. I think that, that there's like a mixed, um, mixed research finding in that area of lactation and mental health. Uh, but in terms of like lactation in general and brain changes, I don't know how that's related. And you also asked about mental health as well. Yeah. So uh, I actually don't know. I don't know. I do know. We do know there's been one study showing where they looked at um, bottle feeding and breastfeeding moms. And there were differences in the activation of certain brain areas at a few months postpartum. This is work done by James Swain, who's at Sunnybrook. 
I don't like slight differences. That's the only study I know looking at mode of feeding and mom's brain. Um, yeah, I think the lactation story has not been well developed in terms of neurobiology. I mean, we know the brain area is important mm-hmm. for lactation and what have you, but how does the interplay with lactation and those lactational hormones actually uh, mm-hmm. affect mothering, mental health and brain changes? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if we know this. It's, it's so interesting that there's such a lack of, of research and knowledge in that area, because I think it leaves so many moms with these questions just kind of hanging there, right? Like, what's happening to me? Is this normal? You know, And then you look it up and you don't really find much. Um, I had experienced, so I nursed um, my two, my three kids almost two years each, and I had them almost two years apart. So I basically nursed for five and a half years straight. And after I stopped nursing my last child last February, I went through this really dark period of not knowing what's going on and, and not understanding. And luckily, because of social media, I wanted to put it out there. I wanted to be transparent about what was happening. And I can't even tell you how many emails I received from moms who felt seen just because I was saying that I was having depressive like symptoms and was really struggling with having stopped nursing. And I didn't know if it was linked to the emotional part of it because I knew that that stage of my life was over or if it was hormonal. But I looked, I, I searched for re- answers and there was absolutely nothing. And so many moms, whether it's moms with anxiety after you know, giving birth. Um, Some of them had no idea that you can have postpartum anxiety that reached out to me too. Um, It's, there's, there are so many unknowns that leave us just wondering what's going on, you know, I I think. Yeah. And I think it's a shame because I think we all, oh, oh, you're pregnant. You had a baby. Aren't you so, it's so cute. You must be so happy, right? Like we're not really talking about, oh man, like I feel like a house or like, (laughs) I feel crap, you know? Um, I mean, I, I, I had two kids, so I went through this, but I think I, I came at it with already a bit of a background in this whole area of motherhood. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but I think that there's an expectation to be a certain way. And so then a normal range of emotions, I always think is very healthy during pregnancy in the postpartum period, Mm -hmm. but often we don't allow for that. You feel like you're happy or that's it. Um, but I also think on top of that, we need to be talking about when those emotions are getting, you know, too much and they're taking over in a negative sense. And that it's very, very, very common to have anxiety, for example, mm-hmm. to be depressed. And, and like what you talked about with this post-weaning depression, it, it does exist. I've seen it in the literature studies on it, but I don't think we talk about it. And this is the other thing is we don't, you know, there's stuff that's being studied that's not being communicated to the general public and people don't don't know that they're not alone like they you know and I think this is where it's really important uh, to talk about these things and connect with Mm. science communicators like yourself so that you can understand and figure out what's going on but also gain understanding of what's going on with us as mothers uh, in particular I mean and birthing people Mm. Um, but I think that that that, you know motherhood has a has a it's a con it's a social construct right that we need to start to break apart quite a bit and reform and make motherhood our own thing and parenting do it our way and be confident about it and I think there's many 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 different ways to parent um, and and that are perfectly wonderful depending on what works for you and and your child so yeah but it's tough it's tough when we just don't have the biology or we don't see the facts or we don't talk about things yeah 
have you found, because you, you had your children in different countries and you said you've moved around a lot. How, how have you found like societal expectations and how that has influenced you being a Canadian some, and someone who's been raised on a farm? And how did you find your early life experience affected how you mothered and how you mothered when everyone else may have been mothering a little bit differently? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so you hit on a big one. How many hours do we have? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so I gave birth to my first in Belgium, and I didn't speak French very well. I was working in the Netherlands as a postdoc. Um, I, um, yeah, so baby number one, a girl in Belgium, and then baby number two in America. Uh, and I'm Canadian. So, you know, the U.S. has a different... <laughs> care system oh my gosh I can tell you stories actually my daughter ended up in an um yeah it was very different experiences but one thing I knew is I shopped around for my people I shopped around for my healthcare providers until I was confident and that that's really important I had a gynecologist in Belgium that I I met once and never went back but he was insistent for me to come back and I refused actually my husband made an appointment and I'm like I'm never going back there we're done um so I did shop around for my people and that was really important for me and I think that's important for everybody to feel comfortable with your healthcare providers that they'll do a good job and take care of you um yeah so how was it for me uh you know, it was a whirlwind. I'm just going to say both experiences were quite different. One, uh, the birth itself for both my children was quite different. Uh, yep. I don't know where to begin. You've asked a loaded question. Like <laughs> it's a very, a very loaded question. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you my first was an intensive care over Christmas in Belgium in the hospital because she was actually born with a biomarker that indicated she had an infection. I planned a home birth. My, my, um, I was five centimeters dilated and everything stopped. So my midwife, who was Dutch said, you, we have to go to the hospital with this gynecologist that I, I knew he was, his bedside manner was <laughs> lacking, but he was very good at what he was doing. So I was happy with this, but in fact, then I was transferred to the hospital and had other midwives because mine couldn't practice there in Belgium who helped me through the labor. And, and I had an induction. I didn't have an epidural for either of my children, but both my children were induced because they wanted to stay in people. I don't know cozy in there. Um, yeah, the aftercare, I'm going to say, you know, for one, Belgium is a socialist country with social health care. I mean, we were in the hospital for a week over Christmas. I think we paid 200 euros. I birthed my second in America with 90% coverage of medical because um, we we're at the university there. I was in hospital for two days, again, without anesthesiologist. Um, and the bill was like $2,000. So financially, we saw a huge difference. And uh, yeah, the whole birthing process. But I, I think I was felt comfortable in both places because I had found my people. Um, of course, there were some weird cultural things like the nurse in Belgium keeps wanting to give me coffee. And I'm like, I don't think we're supposed to drink coffee if we're trying to breastfeed. Uh, I mean, my breastfeeding uh, venture is a whole other, it could be like a whole other podcast. But what I'm going to tell you Two things. One, you can go from bottle to breast. Everyone will be okay. You can go back again. This works in lots of cases. Number two, I breastfed my son on one side, people, one side. Okay. It works like a darn exclusively. 
So the only way I knew about this is I talked to a woman at a conference years before I had kids and she said she breastfed her kids on the side they preferred. And when my son came, I had too much milk, which wasn't the case with my daughter, which was my first baby, but he was like gagging on one side. So I was like, I mean, this one woman made all the difference for our breastfeeding experience. I don't know her name. I can picture her, but that's it. Uh, I fed him on one side and the other side gradually reduced. I, of course, put milk in the freezer because I was like, how is this working? I don't know. Yeah. So that works. So there's a tidbit. If you take nothing else, (laughs) one breast is enough. There you go. Um, So, but yeah, I had, I tested positive for opioids with my second uh, because I had a poppy seed bagel. So I was considered, yeah. So this happened during my labor. I was informed that where was that in America for opioids? Yes. Yes. We lived uh, in a, I've never heard that before. Yeah. So we lived in a portion of, <laughs> of the States near, uh, that had a drug problem. So I was induced, I was scheduled for an induction uh, almost two weeks post my date, which is protocol. Uh, so I had to give a urine sample and they always test it for opioids. And I was in labor, uh, which was a very quick labor with my second, fortunately. Um, uh, but my midwife told me that I tested positive for opioids and the social worker was probably going to come along. Now, if you think about it, my husband's Belgian, I'm Canadian, and I'm now in a different country where they could just do stuff with your baby. I don't know how like social work, what, what they do in the United States. It was quite actually stressful. Um, and we had to stay an extra day in case he went through withdrawal. Anyway, we figured out with my uh, gynecologist who worked with the midwife that it was the poppy seed bagel I had had or poppy seed roll or poppy seed thing uh, at this bakery where we live. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she noted it in my chart, but she didn't note it in the baby's chart. So the pediatrician came in and he was like, okay, you know, I'm not going to be judgmental, but it says here that you've been positive for drugs and we're going to have to test the baby. And I was just like, no, it was a poppy seed roll. Like really, really. Um, but it was a little anxiety inducing on, in that context. So that's my story. I can't even imagine. You can, crazy story, yeah. you can edit all of this. <laughs> you you I never think of that. Like, yeah, no, serious. Do not have poppy seeds. Like it's a real thing. People don't eat them before you go to the hospital. That's I it. Because yeah. So you can do a finer test for like, and my midwife's like, we send the urine sample out for more precise testing of specific drugs. I'm like, okay, but it won't come back for a few days. And I'm like, okay, like, uh, what? Um, but I also will tell you, I was in the hospital over Christmas, my first, and she was like, we had to scrub in to see her. She was in this intermediate intensive care. And one day I go up there, it was Christmas Eve and they have a table out. Like the staff has a table at the entrance of the hospital, um, with food, like, and bottles of wine, the staff. Okay. Have bottles of wine here okay at this table i scrub in to go see my baby in this like i'm in the intermediate intensive care not the like super intensive care my baby's not there i'm like where's my baby my baby's at the table sitting with like a nurse or someone like well not having a glass of wine at that point but i was just like what so this was so not i mean alcohol in hospital number one from canada like does this happen no I mean, in Belgium, though, they have bars at, in the hospital. You know, like you have the gift shop at the hospital. They also will have a bar at the hospital. 
No. <laughs> so, yeah, but there was like never. alcohol on the ward. Like they had tables set up with food and wine on the ward for the staff. <laughs> I was just like, what? Anyway. I think a really great takeaway is that everyone's experience is going to be different and depending on which country you're in, which hospital. And I love this advice that you give that like find your people and surround yourself with people that you trust and, and that you trust yourself, that you know that there are some changes in your brain happening that will prepare you for motherhood and that you surround yourself with people that make you feel right. And that make you feel good. And, and to trust yeah. Yourself. Yeah. And I also think on that note, I would, you know, prepare for things that could happen, right. So have your mental health, not mental health team ready, but know you could contact people if needed, you know, like realize that there are lots of healthcare providers available for different things, public floor issues, all sorts of stuff, and be ready to realize that you might need those people and make sure you have, you know, some idea of who you would contact in those cases. I mean, postpartum support international is amazing for people struggling with mental health around pregnancy in the postpartum period. And that's a great first contact um, to find someone if you need, or, you know, to prepare yourself so you can check out what's available out there in case you know, something happens in the postpartum. I mean, we often can't predict what's going to happen in terms of our health or our mental health uh, and during pregnancy in the postpartum period. So it's best to be prepared and have your people. It makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of the changes, I guess, as a segue to what you experience, but stresses in our life? <laughs> How, you know, after giving birth, are we seeing... I don't know, I, I guess even with the pandemic now, but I, we had spoken to um, Dr. Susan King from yeah. McGill University here who had studied the the ice yeah. storm that we had here in Montreal. And she had seen a lot of impact on the child when there were stressors in the mother's life during pregnancy and, and immediately after. Um, what are some of those brain changes that we see? And and I guess from what the work that you, you've done? Yeah, in terms of stress. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been focused... Well, I don't know where to start with this one because I, for one, again, we don't know a lot of research in terms of parenting. I know in human mothers, Peel Young Kim at Denver, um, she does a lot of research imaging moms and looking at external stressors, a variety of different stressors kind of combined together and how it affects the brain. In terms of what I've been looking at in animal models, I've been more interested in uh, like the hippocampus, for example, in terms of uh, plasticity changes. I'm trying to think now, it's like, what have I, what have I found? What am I looking at? Um, uh, yeah, it's, so let me think about this for a second. I mean, one thing that we are seeing is that there are differences in the effect of stress in different brain areas. So I think this is really important. So I, I did some research on rat moms, but showed that stress effects in the hippocampus versus the prefrontal cortex, for example, were, were a bit different. I'd have to go back and look at exactly the details of this, but it's, it's also a reminder that different brain areas are doing different things or responding to different things. And I think that this is in fact, a good thing to remember because there's a bit of a safety net. So hopefully 
when one brain area is having a bit of an issue, another one can maybe compensate in the grand scheme of things. Mm. Um, of course, that's not always the case. Uh, and sometimes if one area is a bit off, then the whole system might be a bit off as well in the general sense. So, mm. I mean, I always think of this in terms of the connection between like the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala with anxiety, uh, which uh, uh, my collaborator, Joe Lonstein spends a lot of stuff, a lot of time studying, but just this idea that the prefrontal cortex can in fact re-regulate the amygdala if it's getting out of whack. And because you can make those decisions on how to respond to, to how you're feeling classic, probably cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral therapy type idea, but in yeah. brain form. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the stuff I've been looking at in terms of research in moms, I mean, I do a lot of my research looking at antidepressant medication use and how it might affect mom and baby. Uh, so, I mean, like I mentioned, I think different brain areas we're starting to see respond in different ways to stressors as well as to medications. And I think that's really important to understand. And in terms of, I mean, antidepressants, I'm going to have to, I mean, it's been a long time since I've talked about this research, I'm going to say, um, I can tell you, I mean, I've been interested in this question because of course, antidepressant medications like Zoloft, for example, or Prozac, there a lot of individuals take them during pregnancy in the postpartum period, they're needed and they work and they're healthy and important to be on. So I, I think that that's important. They're not helping if you're still feeling anxious or depressed. And of course you need to seek out additional treatment, but the question really has been how do these medications affect the, the maternal brain? That's been a bit of a question for me, which I've, I've been exploring to some degree, but also how do these medications affect offspring development? I don't know. I mean, I can talk a little bit about this because I think this is, sorry. Yeah, I think, I think that's really, I think it's an interesting general topic, how, you know, when we're pregnant, we can be recommended drugs or anything. And how does it affect you know, the, the, the cost benefit analysis, like, yeah, it's really helping your, your mental health and you should probably take it so that your mental health is strong. And that might be, that might offset any potential, but like, um, things that we might see later on in, um, in the child or, or what you're seeing in changes in, in the brain, you might see small changes, but if your mental health when you're pregnant is so poor that you might have to take this medication. Yes. So this is the thing. I mean, there's been, when I started in this area of research was really a lot of hype around like the safety of using antidepressant medications during pregnancy. And I think there's a lot of individuals who don't want to take anything when they're pregnant, um, which I think is great if, if that works for you, but we also have to remember when we're in pain, when we're depressed, when we're anxious, we're actually changing our physiology as well. And so the idea of a medication is to actually normalize it, get it back to a healthy state, right? Whether it's pain or what have you. So I think that we have to remember that's the point of the medication is actually to get your physiology back to normal state. So when you're in a lot of pain or if you're depressed, I mean, this is not beneficial for you, of course, but it's also not beneficial for your baby. And I think that that's one thing we have to remember. And so with the antidepressant story, a lot of the research that was out initially in the animal world, as well as in the clinical research, wasn't controlling for maternal mood symptoms. So uh, how a mom was feeling 
when she was taking the medication. So there wasn't a control for whether or not she was still depressed or anxious. And so this was something that in the past probably five years has been uh, done better in the clinical research, as well as in the, in the animal models, probably over the past 10 years in animal models, where we, in fact, are, you know, in the clinical research, we're looking at mood and anxiety symptoms, as well as antidepressant medication use, and then the effects on mom and baby. And so then that's, I did some of that work with Tim Oberlander. And we, in fact, looked at biomarkers of neural functioning, looking at S100 beta, which is a biomarker for um, like glial cells and then BDNF brain derived neurotrophic factor, um, and looked at differences in these factors with the antidepressant medication or with depression in moms, uh, as well as the offspring. And we did see differences in the S100 beta, um, particularly with medication use in offspring, but we saw that there are also differences, um, with the S S SSRI, the antidepressant medication and BDNF in the moms. If I remember that data correctly, that's probably like, I don't know when it came out a few years ago, but the point is that the SSRI itself was having a bit of a different effect, but then, then the mood also in the moms, we saw effects of the mood. And then, you know, so it's important to look at these different aspects, not just the SSRI or no SSRI, but also the mood symptoms. Um, and we also see, we've seen, there's been quite a bit of research showing that if uh, it's actually not the antidepressant, that's the issue in increasing risk of poor outcomes in children. It's most often the parental stress or the depressive symptoms. And I think that's really important. Um, for one, it means that you need to be treated if you're not feeling well. That's number one. It also means that sometimes the SSRIs aren't working. And perhaps you need something different or you need to change your dose or what have you. So I think those are two important things. And in some ways that kind of plays along with this idea of doing need better treatments for perinatal mental illness, because our brains are different than at other times in life. And I think that's, you know, we definitely are seeing at least one medications on the market, um, Brexanolone or Zolreso, I believe it's called now in the States, which is uh, an, a synthetic, it's synthetic allopregnanolone, which has been quite effective in severe postpartum depression. Um, so, and that's unique for postpartum depression. And so, yeah, so, so treatment is always necessary. I mean, nobody wants to feel depressed, anxious, or sick in any way. And I think that the, the, from what we see of perinatal mental illness and treatment with antidepressant medications is that in terms of safety, they are quite safe. You might increase risk of very few things in offspring outcomes, but if you're not treated, you're going to increase the risk of poor outcomes on many domains. And I think that's important to realize is not taking the medication isn't doing anybody any favors, especially you as a parent or a mother. Yeah. I feel like sometimes we have this all or none approach and maybe I, I know personally when I was pregnant, I didn't want to take anything because I didn't know. I know that things can affect the baby. And so, but if you were suffering from some kind of depression or anxiety and, and talking to your healthcare provider and maybe a psychologist or in your experience as a psychoanalyst, um, like a psychiatrist, you do our yeah. psychotherapy, what, 
what what types of other what other approaches are available that we could either complement if the the medication uh, isn't an option yeah. for you, and maybe we could talk a little bit about the cognitive behavioral therapies or other approaches that are are shown to be quite effective. Yeah, so that's definitely. I mean, I was talking about SSRI medications, but that's not the end all be all. There's other other things right. we know can affect the brain, in fact, and our physiology, other therapies, and I think that's also important. I mean. I primarily have been interested in that medication and use it in my animal models because we can't do therapy with the animal models. Um, (laughs) We can provide them with social support, for example, or other things, uh, but it's not the same. And so, but I definitely think there's so much room for research in this whole area of perinatal mental health and talk therapies or parenting classes. So I know that um, there's been in terms of neurobiology, there's one study I know of that has looked at the brain after an intervention. It was, it's um, by Maria Music out of the University of Michigan. She has a mom power group um, where it's like a group therapy or parenting type class. Uh, it's, it's super, I mean, I've seen her give a talk on it and it's, I find it like so amazing. She's also amazing because uh, she talks about how ideally she doesn't want to be needed. She's a psychiatrist. So if she can provide people with the skills to benefit, to help them, um, then, then her job is done. And I think that's really a lovely thing uh, to think about, but uh, what they did is they imaged the, the parents' brains who participated in this study, I think before and after, or participated in this kind of group therapy, uh, you'd have to look up the details, but anyway, they showed that, that somehow, uh, that therapy affected the brain, but also improved their, their mother child interactions. I mean, the studies with Maria music and James Swain uh, for the details, but what I love is that they showed that a parenting intervention changed the brain. And I think that's really important in terms of like cognitive behavioral therapy. This is another one that's been evidence-based use for postpartum or perinatal mental illness, cognitive behavioral therapy. There's uh, interpersonal therapy, I believe it's called IPT is also evidence-based, which means there's been research around it showing how it's beneficial for postpartum depression, but then there's lots of other therapies or inter, you know, that can be very effective. They just haven't had the research done, um, to make them evidence-based as they like to say, there's probably a few I'm missing that have research out as well. Uh, so there's different therapies, talk therapies. I mean, talking itself is super important. Identifying with the emotions you're feeling, it can be really, really valuable. There's also research looking at singing groups in moms and how that can be beneficial for um, improving mental health as well. So there's different things people can do. So that's out of King's College in London. They have some a, a mom singing group. Anyway, it's fascinating. There's different interventions. So there's a lot of different options available to help uh, improve mental health during the perinatal period. Uh, of course, ensuring that you have some support, um, realizing you don't have to do this alone. Sleep is medicine, everybody. So trying to get some of it is really good, uh, particularly um, trying to get it at, in the nighttime or going to bed earlier is always beneficial. Uh, and also nutrition and movement, right? So eat something colorful if you can, that's fresh uh, periodically and go outside and move if you can a little bit. 
I mean, those are some basics. It's hard to do everything you're supposed to do when you have to have a baby too. But if you can take baby steps of, you know, improving here and there, that can also be beneficial. I think to um, end our conversation, th there's something a parent asked me. That, um, she said, is there anything positive about mom brain? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that sort of summarizes what we spoke about today and that this whole mom brain that is defined by society is, is negative. But in the end, you've showed us that there are lots of changes in the brain and the parents in both of the uh, in the mom and the dad's brain. And And these changes in the end from, from what I took from this conversation are also very important for the connection and the, 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 the relationship that we're going to build with our child. And sometimes, you know, the brain is impacted by mental health and that's also going to have an impact. But in the end, there are lots of changes. How would you summarize our conversation today with perhaps some take home messages for parents who are listening and, and wondering, okay, what, what, you know, how do I apply this knowledge now to my life? Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, that's what I want people to take home is that your brain changes during pregnancy and the postpartum period. Your brain changes when you're a non-birthing parent as well. It changes in response mm -hmm. to your interaction with your child. And, and these are good changes, they're great changes, just because it has smaller sizes of certain brain areas that actually means it's functioning better. So there's a huge normal change in your brain that's super important for all the amazing things you do as a parent. And I think the term mom brain, for me, uh, we need to change it. So I acknowledge that there definitely are memory changes that can happen or feeling foggy, feeling overwhelmed. Like there's a lot of emotional changes and cognitive changes happening during pregnancy and the postpartum period, uh, especially for primary caregivers, which are usually moms. But I think we also need to shift the narrative and think about all those amazing things you're doing. I mean, within a, you know, a few hours, even I, I bring up this research all the time and I'll tell you it again, but there's, there's this research that showed that a mom can recognize uh, her infant by touch if she's, so she's given three hands to touch the back of the hand and within hours of birth, a mom can pick out her baby from two other babies. Wow. And so a dad can do this. He needs, yes, he needs yeah. a few more hours, but a dad could also do this. I mean, this is one study you've done in the nineties, but I love it because it shows that, that you are actually learning tons of things. You have no idea that you're learning the smell, the touch, uh, you're responding to your baby. You're figuring stuff out in those first few weeks. And so it's a huge learning process. So that's your mom brain. That's it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so mom brain is your superpower. It's amazing. It's amazing what your brain is doing and you're not even aware of it. And I think that's what we need to take home. The mental load stuff, the like, I'm forgetting a few things here and there, or, you know, yes, that happens. That's okay. But you're doing a whole bunch of other things. But I also want to say, if you're actually forgetting tons, you're crying, you're super anxious. I mean, there's help available and you're not alone. That's also pretty normal. A lot, a lot of individuals will struggle uh, with, especially the postpartum period mentally, because your, your brain is being like, I mean, pushed to the max, right? You have sleep deprivation and all these other things that are playing a role. You're responsible for a baby. I mean, that's a big deal. So So I think that apart from this amazing superpower that our brain is, we also need to acknowledge that it needs help sometimes too. And, and that's 
okay and that's normal and we need to be able to support parents especially mothers as they they mother and they they do this Mm -hmm. right Right. And I love that. And and just valuing how important those few first few months and, and as a society, maybe we don't value it. And so our expectations are are different than what we would um, we, what we expect when we have a baby that, oh, yeah, it's just going to happen. And, and there's all these things going on, but that it takes so much mental capacity and physiological changes that are happening. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah but we have to kind of live with it and, and, and let it happen and not like we're back to normal and we're going to work and we're going to do all these other things. It's like, it takes a lot. And I think at least for me, it was this expectation that it it wasn't going to be this hard and uh, just kind of being okay with that and let it, and let yourself just let these changes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think that's really difficult because we don't see motherhood as like a full-time job or parenting as uh, something valuable often. So I think it's hard. Yeah. I Mm -hmm. think it's, it's difficult to just be, I mean, for us, my husband's a zoologist. And so we're just like biology, it'll work out. It's going to be fine. We're supposed to do this. Right. Otherwise we'll find some help. Right. But we also took a lot of time. We didn't do other things often. I mean, and there was two of us, which was helpful, but sometimes that option to just sit and be, a parent doesn't exist for people either. So we really have to try to figure out how to optimize the parenting experience and support people who need the support as well. Um, yeah, but it is pretty cool. I'm going to say overall, it's yeah. a cool thing. Yeah. <laughs> how can our audience find you? I know you're on Instagram. You've changed your handle a little bit, right? I yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instagram yeah. is not my friend. Um, so I'm on Instagram as Dr. Jody Paluski, uh, and you can just search Jody Paluski and I'll pop up, but I'm also mommy brain, uh, underscore like line revisited. I used to be another mommy brain revisited handle, but it, it disappeared. Instagram got rid of it. So it's been really uh, disappointing for me, but at mommy brain revisited, you can find, uh, I have a podcast where I talk to other neuroscientists about their research and you can find more information about that as well as I'm trying to post periodically just brain facts about parenting and, and brain mm-hmm. changes from research out there. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, so pop on over to that to give it a follow for that information. My personal or not my personal, but my more professional page, I, I've been starting to just post my publications. Um, so at least there's some resources there and some uh, some publications I'm involved in. So yeah. And you have a lot of publications that are not just um, in journals and about research. You have a lot of science communication. Oh, too, yes, I, I just started recently. I, I have two blog posts with Inspire the Mind. It's a it's a great resource for lots of information um, written by scientists uh, about a host of different topics. So Inspire the Mind. Um, yeah, and I'm in fact writing a book, which I, I guess I I'll make it official. Uh, I'm writing a book on brain changes with motherhood uh, if for the general public. It's in fact going to be out in French. I don't write in French, but thankfully I have a wonderful ghostwriter who's translated and then, um, you know, fixed it up here and there. So that will be out in September 2022 in France with La Rose. Uh, you know, La Rose is like a huge French publishing mm-hmm. um, book. A book publisher. So that will be out. I'm just finishing it up. And it's really kind of a bit my story of what I've 
how I come to where I've come, but mostly intertwined predominantly with the research and, and then also what we don't know, what I think about it and, and things like mm-hmm. this. Right. And, and, and uh, yeah, so I think it's an important book. Um, hopefully it would be in English. I really hope so because I hope so. <laughs> my, yeah. my family won't yeah. be able to read the French. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, that'll be good practice for my French. I'll read it first in French. And well, then I'll try and read you it. know, Google Translate has this great thing. You can just put the camera on and like yeah. hold it and then it translates everything. So, um, yeah, I said a lot of no's to doing that book before I said yes. And now it, it's been fun writing it because it's more like writing, I would say, an Instagram post more so than writing, of course, a scientific paper. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's been it's been fun. Of course, I can't cover all the research ever, but at least it will get some information out there. Yeah. That's so interesting. Can I also ask you, because we started before we started recording, you were mentioning a few books that you're reading. Yeah. And I think the audience would love to hear what you're reading and some of your inspiration uh, when you're, when you're writing and for your Instagram posts and for like a general, general knowledge, general um, books that people might be. Yeah. So I've been reading and I'll maybe pull a couple off my shelf. So I've been reading, uh, you know, I've connected with different authors over the past few years, particularly those interested in neurobiology of postpartum mental illness or perinatal mental illness. And so I've read their books as they've come out as well. So I have, um, So this book I loved, Emma Jane Unsworth, she also writes novels. She's, (laughs) she's got great novels. At least I thought they were great. I read one, two of them. Anyway, uh, she wrote this after the storm, super good book about her struggle with postpartum depression. Uh, Really great. In fact, there's a part that just like, yeah, she, she talks about why, don't we talk about the brain changes? Like maybe if I'd known, if I'd known my brain was changing, maybe I would have felt it wouldn't have been such a struggle. Like maybe I wouldn't have been so depressed if I'd just known that there was, you know, these changes that were normal, right. Uh, happening, but of course, yeah. So this is a great one, which I highly recommend. I've been also reading um, a bit more about motherhood in the context of culture and society. So I've been reading uh, Elizabeth Baddinger, Mother Love. This is the English one. I don't think it's in print anymore, but it's in French. It's still in print. Uh, It's quite famous. She talks about the history of motherhood in the context of French society predominantly. Um, She also is quite a voice, especially in the Francophone world. Uh, She's a philosopher and she's one of the richest women in the world. That's a side note, not because of her, not because of her book, <laughs> you know, because does motherhood really sell? I don't think so, unfortunately. Um, so she, yeah, this is very interesting because it talks about the cultural context of motherhood and how we perceive mothers today. Right. Um, and I've also been li- li- listening to, I'm going to look it up now, a because I like to listen to audiobooks and walk because otherwise, how are we ever going to get steps in anybody? I have no idea. So I love that. I, 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 it's very hard as a mother to sit down and read. So I appreciate it when other people say they're listening to audiobooks. Oh yeah. It's such a great way to, to get a book in. Or yeah. And I do it. I love it and for um, science books because I don't know, I somehow retain it better if I'm moving. I don't know. For novels, I like yep. paper. Yeah. Yeah, so of women born motherhood as experience and institution, Adrian Rich uh powerful people 
I mean, and she wrote it in the seventies and some of the stuff is really relevant today. Um, and then for our audience who can't see Jody yeah. is surrounded yeah. by with thousands of books. It's just all good for looks. You're such a great resource. I also, I read this, which I really liked um, by Dr. Karen Bodner, Wild Moms. And so she writes about motherhood and other animals. And some of them were crazy. I didn't know like naked mole rats (laughs) have like this queen. Well, and you might not even know what a naked mole rat is. I did, but not, I mean, only a few years ago, I knew about that. Anyway, it, we're going to have to have a whole podcast about naked mole rats um, and like, it's crazy. <laughs> mole rats. Um, and also there's a lot of research. In yeah. That, right? uh, a lot Melissa of animal Hines, models. Uh, use. Melissa Holmes, sorry. Melissa Holmes at uh, university of Toronto, Mississauga uses them as a model. Um, but I think they have like one queen, like naked mole, one queen bee who lays the bait, like lays or has the babies and then other people take care of them. It's when I read this, I was like, you know, people, yes, there are many different ways to parent. We see this in the animal kingdom. And I think the problem with, when we look at the history of motherhood in the human context, a lot of the people were like, well, look at sheep. This is one baby and one mom. And that's how we're supposed to be. And that's actually not how we're supposed to do, be. If you look at the animal kingdom, I mean, there's a variety based on environment resources, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. So those ones I've been reading and I, I don't know, I think I'll stop there. There's too many like <laughs> good ones, things. but those are, there, there you go. That's great. Yeah. That's more than I can read in the next couple. Of I was, months. I was just gonna say, <laughs> Marion's gonna send you an email asking for yeah. more, <laughs> more books for yeah. sure. I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Yeah, like, I, I prefer the audiobook. I've also like Why We Sleep was super great. Um, there was oh, yeah. one, The Last Breath, oh, bre- breathing one. It was like a memoir of this guy, and he ended up dying before it finished. Oh, I don't know. I've just had like a lot of different oh, ones yeah. I've been listening to. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I think I've, I've probably taken up a lot of your time and rambled on. So sorry. <laughs> we were so, so excited to speak with you and we we're fascinated by your work uh, and, and by your knowledge on all of this. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Thank today. you so much for having me on. It was really a pleasure to meet you. And thank you for all that you do. My goodness, it's super great to get science out there. So thank you. We need to. Well, that's why I'm really grateful that there are researchers like yourself as well that are putting the work out there. You know, it's it's we need to have more of this out there and we need to the public needs to understand what's going on, whether you're pregnant, whether you just had a child or you're parenting. We the research matters. Yeah, so thank you. again. Thanks. Perfect. We will chat again soon. Thanks. thanks. Bye. Thank you.